All right. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to go ahead and, <clears throat> and get these started here. And so uh, these pictures go by fairly rapidly. So uh, they, once they're gone, you're not going to see them again. So pay attention to them. Go. We can turn off the lights. Uh, they won't be needed for uh, this presentation. So we can, if it's darker, you'll be able to see this better. Now, um, so I know many of you, and um, even more of you know me from my various trips through this area and uh, in company of my dad as he holds meetings here and whatnot. But uh, this is the first opportunity I've ever had to uh, speak at Advent Hope, and so I'm very glad to have this uh, chance to do so. Um, for those who don't know me, which are a lot of you, I will give a little bit of background as to uh, where I come from and what uh, my uh, specialty is. The uh, last 20 years, I have been traveling around the United States and uh, Canada, um, exploring the natural world in whatever habitat I happen to be at the time. My father is a speaker that travels from uh, church to church and allows him to get to every state in the country, and I have had the opportunity to help out with his ministry and uh, uh, help him in his endeavors, and in the same time have the advantage of traveling throughout the country, seeing virtually every type of habitat you can possibly imagine. And in this process, I have made the study of animals and the animal uh, behavior um, not my specialty. It has become my passion to explore the various habitats that I happen to be in and find the animals that don't like to be found, and in that way, find uh, out what God has to teach us in this regard in the animal world. Now, in this process, I've discovered uh, a lot of interesting things, but the two that I want to share with you this morning are animal diversity and animal complexity. Now, first off, there is the in incredible diversity of animal life on this planet. No matter where you look, you're going to find something different that you haven't seen before. There is every type of locomotion, there's every type of behavior, there's every type of way of surviving in this very different uh, and varied habitats we have around the world. In this uh, incredible diversity, the more we study, the more diverse we find it to be. There are millions and billions of species on this planet, and all of them more uh, interesting than the last in, in many cases. Second thing that I've uh, been able to discover is the incredible complexity of animal life. When we study animal life, and scientists are doing this on a constant basis around the world with creatures that beyond your uh, wildest dreams, we find everything to be more complex than we ever dreamed possible. There is no limit to the complexity of the life that we study. When we study the animals, we find them to be far, far more complex than we ever, ever had any idea. But now, every PBS program, every National Park Service ranger talk has used the idea of animal complexity and animal diversity to promote the theories of evolution. Now, <clears throat> as, we, uh, we've, uh, as we go through history, we find a very interesting sequence has developed. Uh, when Darwin sailed the Beagle and used island adaptation of animal life as the keystone of his ideas, creationists became on the defensive in this area and have been ever since. Early church fathers stated wrongly that every animal species was created exactly as we see it today, and evolutionists were easily able to disprove this claim and make creationists very defensive. Now, I refuse to surrender that ground to evolutionists since I know it so well myself. Now, others have shown in detail how the evolutionist view of the fossil record is wrong, how sedimentation and erosion testifies to a worldwide flood, how astronomy cannot work on evolutionary models, how deeply flawed dating methods are continually used to lie to the public, how paleontology has foisted repeated hoaxes as evidence for evolution. I will not be exploring any of those topics since others have done it so well. 
But I have been impressed that not nearly enough attention has been paid to the living souls all around us, the testify of a master designer. Now, in the last 150 years, this is the sequence that has happened. A creationist 150 years ago put forth the idea that if we came across a pocket watch lying upon a beach, if we found a working pocket watch, we would automatically assume that someone had built that watch, that someone had designed it, that someone had put it together. We would not assume that it happened by random chance that there was a working pocket watch lying on the ground. And so the argument went that a living creature, a living being, an animal, a plant, was far more complex than any mechanical construct of man and therefore had to be designed as well. It could not happen by the processes of random chance. Now, this was a very powerful argument that evolutionists had no good answer for. Then, in the 1980s, a book came out called The Blind Watchmaker. This book stated that given enough time, given enough raw materials, that it was not only possible but inevitable that evolution would produce life in all its infinite complexity, that it would be able to create not only a working pocket watch but far more complex living creatures. So what about it? Is this a reasonable answer to this question? Is this a, the solution that evolutionists would like it to be? I decided that I needed to challenge this idea of the blind watchmaker and show the fallacy of what this really stands upon. Now, in this presentation, I will be showing various examples from the animal world of the amazing variety and adaptation of life. I am solely focusing on animal life, but just as much could be done from the plant world. Now, as I list various species, keep asking yourself the following question. Are the physical structures of these animals a likely product of chance, or design. Now, second question, are the mental specializations displayed by these animals a likely product of chance or design? There are only two choices, lucky chance or master design. You must decide for yourself which you feel is the most appropriate. All right, <clears throat> this is the rock formation in southern England that we call Stonehenge. Now, when we look at Stonehenge, do we say, what an amazing display of random forces resulting in this rock arrangement? Do we say, instead, what an amazing display of architectural ingenuity by whoever built it? When we come across a rubble pile, do we say, look at all the efforts somebody went to piling all those rocks like that? When we look at a stained glass window, do we say, it sure is lucky that the glass accidentally formed into that beautiful pattern so that we can enjoy it? When we look at a pane of broken glass, do we say, that must have taken a huge amount of effort and work to create that pattern in the glass? Now, both of these substances are the same, glass. Both of the previous substances are the same, rock. But don't we know instinctively, based on our innate knowledge and experience, which of these is due to accident and which of these is due to design. If we can use common sense and experience to identify whether or not an inanimate object is due to chance or design, then why can't we use that same common sense and experience to determine whether or not a living creature is, is due to the results of design or accident? We start with one of the more common groups of birds in the world. These are found virtually everywhere you want to go in, in, in any tropical or temperate part of the world on every continent except for Antarctica. These birds are found uh, no matter where you live, you will have some form of woodpecker near where you are. 
Now, woodpeckers all share the same basic structure and the same basic adaptations in which they are able to function. Now, to start with, they all are, uh, have a very stiff tail that allows them to brace themselves upon a uh, tree trunk so that they're able to get into the exact position in which they are able to be upright so they can pound on the wood with their head. Secondly, they have very special feet up here. Instead of having, like most birds, three toes pointing forward and two toes and, and one toe pointing backward, they have, in fact, two toes pointing forward and two toes pointing backward. This allows them to get a very strong grip on the wood without slipping because they're going up and down and around and needing to hold on very tightly. And this allows them to get a very good grip as they're moving about. Now, woodpeckers are built to pound their head against a tree trunk. This is what they do for a living. They not only do it once, they do it many, many times, hundreds of times per day. They are throwing their head forward at 25 miles an hour with each hit. Now, if we threw our heads forward against a solid object at 25 miles an hour, we would not be doing this for very long. It would not be a very successful endeavor. But these guys do it hundreds of times a day with no ill effects. Now, how can this be? Well, first off, they have a very strong skull, a very hard reinforced skull, a very strong neck compared to most birds. This allows them to withstand the force of the impact as they're hammering away so they don't get skull fractures, so they don't have any kind of injuries, that, that sort of thing. They also have a cushion around their brain that allows them to act like a shock absorber so that it actually protects their brain from being uh, uh, sh shaken out of its, uh, out of its senses. They also, the brain is different from most other birds in that it's above the level of the bill so that it actually is out of the way of most of the impact of, the, uh, of, of its hammering and therefore avoids any of the damage that would occur if it was on the same level as the bill. So all these things are built into it so that it can able to uh, pound its head without any damage. Now, they are pounding their head for a simple reason. They've got to get the food inside the tree trunk. They have to get the insect grubs that are inside the, the wood. And so now once they've drilled a hole, they still have to extract the insect grub from the, uh, uh, from the hole. And to do this, they have an extremely specialized tongue. Their tongue is covered with a very gluey saliva that allows them to stick to whatever they touch inside the hole, pull out their tongue, whatever is touching the tongue is pulled out, and that way they're able to uh, hook onto whatever they got. They're also, their tongue has very spiky hairs that allow them to yank, on, hank, yank onto anything that grabs and yank it back into its mouth very easily. And so this allows them to get the food they need. Now, their most specialized aspect of their tongue, however, is the fact that it is four times the length of their bill. Now, where are we going to put a tongue that is four times the length of a bird's bill. If we had a tongue like that, we wouldn't be able to do anything else but stick it in our mouth and not be able to talk or anything. We wouldn't be able to function very well. So that's not a very good thing for us. They have the same problem. Where are they going to put it? So a woodpecker has a special, unique adaptation that is completely different from any other family of birds in the world. There is a, a point at the back of its throat where the tongue would normally attach in a regular bird, and instead it goes into a tube inside a woodpecker's mouth. This tube allows the tongue to slide backwards, and it go, the tube goes up the back of the head, between the brain and the skull, over the top of the brain, down forward, and ends up in the nostril, like this. This allows him to store his tongue and allows him to uh, hang on to uh, uh, whatever he needs to grab onto, and then when he's done with his tongue, it's able to slide back into the slot. He sticks it out, withdraws it, sticks it out, and this allows him to get whatever he needs to from his uh, insect-laden hole. And so this is a very specialized adaptation that no other bird family has. It's a very unique thing. 
Now, when we look at all these adaptations that woodpeckers have, all these specializations that they have, we will look throughout the entire world and we will not find any other type of bird that has what we have just looked at. There is no other group of birds, living or dead in the fossil record, that has the specializations that we've looked at here. There is no sequence of events for evolutionists to point to to show that they are birds developed by ages from this bird to that, gradually acquiring new designs until they finally get to this very specialized form that the woodpeckers are today. And so you have this unique family of bird, all by themselves isolated, with no evolutionary ties that can be shown that have brought them to this case. And so we have here a group of birds that have been given exactly what they need to survive by God's miracle-working hand. The thorny devil. This fearsome reptile of the Australian outback stomps across the desert terrain looking for whom he may devour. A modern-day dinosaur, 10 feet long, well, not quite. <laughs> He's not very fearsome to anyone except for ants, and he will f walk along till he finds himself a uh, ant colony, and then he'll set, set himself down, and he'll start to lick up ants, and he will do so until he's eaten up two to 3,000 ants. Their entire food source is ants, and they will do nothing but eat ants, and that's all they need to eat. Now, that provides them all the food they need, but that doesn't help them much in the way of water, because ants aren't terribly juicy. So these guys need to drink like any other animal and they have a very serious problem in the fact that they're living in the middle of a desert and they have no water around. There's no ponds, there's no streams, there's no rain except for very rarely. And so if they didn't have some source of water ability, they would not be able to survive. So these guys have a specialization that allows them to get water without moving an inch. They stand out in the middle of the night in wherever they happen to be, and then the dew and whatnot will collect upon their body as it collects upon any rock or branch or anything like that around them. In this process, the water is now collecting on their back. Now they have scales like any lizard, hard, bony scales. Unlike other lizards, however, the scales are covered with tiny little veins called capillary veins. These microscopic little veins form a network across their entire back. When the water collects on their back, it begins to trickle down these veins, and these veins channel the water directly to the corner of its mouth. It does not take the water away from his mouth. It takes it directly to the corner of his mouth where he can drink all that he needs to drink without moving an inch. Why the water goes toward his mouth and not away, we have no idea. It is a beautifully, perfectly designed system that nothing else is like in the entire world. And another instance of God giving these creatures exactly what they need to survive in difficult conditions. The four-eyed fish is a small fish in the Central American rivers that appears to have four eyes, even though it really doesn't. These guys swim on the surface of the streams where they can collect insect prey. This allows them to get whatever food falls under the water. And in that process, it is very dangerous because predators can get you from above. Predators can get you from below. And so they have to be able to see both directions at once. And so, unlike any other fish, they have an eye that is actually divided in an hourglass shape into two segments. The upper segment is above the waterline and looks upward. The lower segment is below the waterline and looks downward. This allows him to see in both directions at once. His brain is able to interpret all the information from two directions at the same time and put it all together and get it himself into a working thing that makes it exactly what he needs to see. Now, when you look at a object in the water, it's never exactly where it appears to be because of the water distortion. That's why when you stick a, a, a piece of wood or something in, it looks like it's bent. Now, they have to deal with the exact same problem. 
So the lens on the upper part of their eye is normal, but the lens on their lower part of their eye is actually more strongly curved to compensate for the water distortion effects. And so the two lenses are actually just what exactly he needs to see in both directions perfectly at the same time. There is no other type of fish in the world that has these specializations. It is completely unique. Again, there's no fossil uh, record of any other fish that allows us to look at these and say, yes, it developed from this fish or whatnot. This is a unique little fish with exactly what it needs to survive. Now, you're noticing a pattern here. All these creatures are having exactly what they need to survive in whatever given ever area, and they're exactly specialized and exactly how they need to be. If they weren't like this, they would have a very much harder time surviving. The sand grouse are a group of birds found in the desert areas of the world. They nest in the most isolated, remote places that they can possibly find in order to avoid predators. You set up your nest where there's no predators and you don't have to worry about your eggs being eaten. <clears throat> that also has one drawback. In those places, they're so isolated and so remote that there is no water around and they need to feed their chicks water as well as food. And so you have a serious problem in order to get these uh, chicks their drink of water. So they have a very specialized thing that allows them to get the water to their babies. They can't carry a canteen on their back, so they instead carry a canteen in their feathers. The male sand grouse has unique feathers on his chest. He will fly to a water hole, uh, sometimes up to 50 miles away from where he is nesting. He will get himself his drink, the female will get her drink, and then the male will fluff up his chest feathers, he'll wade into the water, and the, wa and the water will then soak into his feathers like a sponge. Completely unique design of these feathers that allows it to soak up water far more uh, than any other feather could possibly do so. After he has soaked up the water, he flies back to his chicks. He settles on top of them. They immediately, instinctively go up into his chest feathers and drink the water from his feathers as if they were drinking from a uh, sponge. This allows them to get the water they need in the middle of the desert without any problems whatsoever. Another miracle uh, gift to these birds that allows them to have what they need. Octopus, get my vote, as the most intelligent invertebrate in the ocean. These are, animals are found in a huge diversity of colors and sizes, although the basic body structure is all the same. They vary from ones that are only an inch across to the Pacific Giant, which is over nine feet across. They all have eight arms. None of them have any bones. They are all completely uh, soft and squishy. They all carry their organs inside their large mantle behind their eyes. And they have these wonderful uh, suckers covering their tentacles that allow them to manipulate their surroundings with extreme dexterity to the point that they're able to unscrew a jar with food in it and get the food out of the jar. They can control their, each sucker independently without having uh, any problems. Uh, without, they're able to control each one individually. Now, when they uh, are in trouble, they will eject a uh, cloud of black uh, substance that we call ink, and this substance will cloud the water, provide a smoke screen, allow them to scoot away, and at that point they're able to hide from whatever is attacking them. This inky substance also has the ability to block the smelling ability of boray eels, which is one of their principal predators. When they get into trouble then, they will also eject water from the siphon. Um, let me show you the siphon here. When you see this uh, Right here, this one siphon sticks out. This is which they intake and excrete water from their mantle. When they get into trouble, they're able to force the water out of that in a jet propulsion that allows them to rocket their way across the ocean's uh, seafloor and escape from whatever's attacking them. This allows them for a very quick getaway. 
Now, all of these octopuses are very smart. If you take an octopus and you put it in an aquarium, you have to be very, very sure of what you're doing because they're going to find a way out if you don't know what you're doing. They can squeeze through the tiniest crack. They can figure out the most complex lock. They can do unbelievable stuff where they are so smart. And they have this uh, wonderful mind that they're able to put to, uh, to whatever uh, difficulties are in front of them and find their way out of whatever is going on. Now, an aquarium in California had a tank full of octopus and a tank full of feather fish and a tank of crabs and various things in a back room. And uh, one day they came and found that the uh, uh, crab tank was missing one of its crabs, one of the crabs that had been eaten. And the next morning they came back and another crab was missing and nothing was ever in the tank and they couldn't find any sign of what had done this to the crabs. And so they finally, in desperation, set up a video camera to figure out what in the world was going on. They came back the next day, found another crab missing, played the videotape and watched this octopus climb out of his tank, walk down the side of his, of his glass container, cross the counter, pass by various other tanks with fish that he had no interest in, reach the crab tank, crawl into the crab tank, eat himself a crab, and then return all the way back to his home. This was an incredible display of octopus intelligence because he not only had the ability to see across the room the food that he was wanting because he had no ability to smell it in a completely separate tank, but he could see it and know that that was something that he wanted to eat and know that he needed to get back to his home so he wouldn't be caught at the scene of the crime. <laughs> he wasn't counting on videotape technology to catch him in the act, however. Octopuses are also have this amazing ability to change color. Tiny little pigment sacs in their skin are able to contract and expand at their own control. This allows them to change their color at a moment's notice. In a tide pool off of uh, San Diego, I once found an octopus that ran for cover. It got underneath a rock. It was a dark brownish uh, octopus. Once it, once it got under the rock, I wanted to see it again. I'd barely seen it for like two seconds. And so I reached under the rock. It grabbed hold of my hand with his suckers, and I gently, gently tried to pull him out so I could see him. I would get him out to the point where he would almost be exposed, and then at that point he would release my hand and escape back into the crack because he didn't really want to be out in the sunlight. And so I'd wait a few seconds, I'd reach in again, he'd grab hold of my hand again, and I'd pull him slowly back out, and he'd release my hand. I could never get him out of the, of the hole. I spent a half an hour trying to get him out. He never would come out. But in the process, I would get a tentacle or two out at, the, at one time or another. And just for the record, there is an octopus in this picture. He is completely camouflaged against the background. Those blue rings you see are actually on the octopus. So it shows how amazingly they're able to camouflage themselves. But in this process, I was able to uh, see a tentacle. One time it was pink, one time it was white, one time it was dark red. Depending on his mood at the time, depending on his emotions that he was feeling, he was changing colors underneath that rock at an instant's notice and, uh, and, and whatever, displaying whatever he needed to display for, for whatever particular mood he was having at the time. Now, we, when we look at this octopus family and all these different ways that octopuses uh, are able to manipulate their environment and, and survive, we find the incredible intelligence that has been put into the creatures around us and the way that these guys are amazingly built in completely different forms than we're used to in the cats and dogs and, and birds that we normally see around us. Now, when we think of mothers in the animal world, we don't normally think of insects. Insects are thought of as the ones that lay their eggs and abandon them and never have anything to do with them. And that, in fact, is true of most insects. They actually don't much have much care for their, their young. But there are a few insects that do, in fact, care for their young very strongly. 
They are members of various families, but especially amongst the um, true bugs are a number of insects that do care for their young. Some of these will lay their eggs and guard them and protect them from anything that might come along to attack them and eat them and will ward off anything that uh, might be coming after them. Usually these, however, by the time their insects' eggs hatch, they will then let them go and let them go about their business and it won't be any big deal. At that point, they will let them go. This one is a male water bug carrying his eggs on his back until they hatch. And that way he doesn't have to stay in one place. The eggs come with him wherever he goes. There is one group of insects, however, that gives far more care to their insect young. And these are the maternal lace bugs. Here's an electron microscope picture of one showing the incredible detail of these creatures that you would normally never be able to see with the naked eye and shows how God hides beautiful art designs in the smallest creatures around us. These guys lay their eggs, guard them, protect them. When the eggs hatch, they do not abandon them, but they continue to guard them. The babies will come out of their eggs and will wander around on the leaf and begin to forage on whatever leaf that the mother has laid them on and eat until there's no more leaf left to eat. At that point, the mother tells them, all right, we need to go. How she tells them this, we have no idea. And then she begins wandering off down a branch and they all line up into single file and follow her down the branch till they get to wherever she leads them. Now, if she gets to a point where there's a correct path and an incorrect path that she needs to go on one way and the other way is the wrong way, she will actually take the wrong way, turn herself around, brace her foot against the wrong path so that the babies are forced to file on by her on the correct path. They will continue to go by her. They know to keep going and they file on by her until the last one goes and then she follows them until it gets to the next leaf and the next pasturage and then she begins to guard them again from anything that might come along and attack them. In this way, they're able to be very well protected until the point comes when they're able to be on their own. And so here is an example of a very uh, attentive mother taking care of her babies. Now, again, with spiders, we don't think of spiders being very attentive mothers. Normally, the spiders lay their eggs, the eggs hatch and disperse on their own, and that's the end of it. There's no more parental care whatsoever. But in fact, there are a few spiders that are very good mothers again. Most of these are from the wolf or the nursery web spiders. These guys, when they are ready to lay their eggs, they lay a pile of eggs, they wrap it in a ball of silk, and then they attach it to their abdomen and carry it along with them in what has to be the most inconvenient backpack ever invented, bumping over every single piece of debris that they come across. This doesn't last for very long, however. They get to the point where the time comes the babies hatch, the babies crawl out of their egg sac, and at that point, they do not leave, but in fact, crawl onto their mother's abdomen and ride around on her. All you see here are babies sitting on, her, on their mother's back. Now, I find these spiders all the time with babies on their back, especially out east and in the south. But there is one time that I found a mother with her babies that uh, surpassed any that I'd ever seen before. Not only were the babies attached to her abdomen, but they came all the way up to the top of her head. Um, without a doubt, the highest density of babies I've ever seen on a spider. They almost got to the point where they completely blinded her, kept her from seeing anything. And so here she's wandering around carrying her babies on her back. Now, how many mothers do you know who would carry 50 babies on their back to protect them from all danger? This is a very devoted mother and a very attentive for, uh, creature. Now, when we look at evolutionary theory, one of the principles of evolutionary theory is that similar creatures in similar situations will raise their young in the same way. Whatever is the most beneficial for the group will be done by all because those will be the ones who most survive. But as we see here with insects and spiders, they are doing it in a wide diversity of ways. There is no set version. They're all surviving just fine, and they're doing it in completely different ways. This is an underpinning of evolutionary theory because evolutionary theory says just the opposite. 
Now, the egg-eating snakes are found in India and in Africa. These guys are ordinary-looking snakes. They're small snakes. They're only a foot or two long, and it's not a big, you know, big deal. You'd think there's nothing special about that snake. But there is specialized food choices of this snake. Instead of going out and finding your rodents and whatnot to get, they actually love to find eggs. They find an egg in a nest. They find whatever bird snakes they can find, and they decide that's what they want to eat. Oftentimes, the egg is bigger than their head. This is a problem. How do they solve this? Well, they start to work at this impossible job to squeeze their mouth around an egg that's bigger than they are. They slowly work their lips onto the edge of the edge of the egg. Their lips have almost, almost like adhesive-like edges that allow them to grip the eggshell and pull their way forward until they actually are able to engulf the egg around. Their jaw is split into four parts to allow it to expand enough to allow this egg to slip into their mouth. At this point, then, they're now fully uh, consuming the egg. It's still very awkward and still very difficult to deal with, and you wouldn't be able to survive very long without predators catching you if you had to uh, digest a huge egg like this. So in this, at this point, there are prongs sticking down from his vertebra right about here, several prongs sticking directly down into his throat. At this point, the egg is being forced past those prongs, and it is slicing open the eggshell inside their throat. Once it is open enough, the egg is squeezed with muscular contractions of the snake's throat, and all the juices, all the, uh, the yolk and the white, are then squeezed into the throat and stomach of the, of the snake, and the egg is therefore at that point collapsed, and the eggshell is regurgitated out because there's no point to swallow an eggshell because you can't digest it anyway. And so it has this completely unique set of designs to allow them to eat what no other snake can eat in a way that no other snake can do it. And it's all built around this specialized feeding uh, behavior that these guys have in order to eat eggs. Okay, I'm actually, I'm going to quit now because I wanted to make sure that uh, we ended on time. Now, this is what we're going to do. Um, this is part one of what this presentation is all about. At four o'clock this afternoon, we will be going into part two. And it will pick up right where this one left off, and it will finish off this uh, presentation. We will continue to uh, look at God's design and how the animal world testifies to a designer and how the ways that uh, the animal worlds are built um, is shown to reveal God. Now, that's the 4 o'clock meeting. Now, if you come late for that, you will never know about the scrub turkey. So that's what's going to happen. Now, if you come at any time, however, it'll be the same kind of style of presentation as what you've seen this morning. It'll be the uh, uh, various segments that deal with various uh, nature aspects of God's creation. At 5.30, our last meeting will be completely different than what we're doing here this morning. It will not be the same style of where it's in different segments. If you can only come for one meeting this afternoon, come for the 5.30 meeting, because that one is our most important meeting showing how the practical aspect of what we're learning here today matters. Why does it matter that creation is true to Adventists? I mean, we have this obvious kind of gut feeling that animals were created by God, but, you know, so what? How does that matter to us as a final generation in Adventism? How does this important in our uh, daily life? 
And so that's what the last meeting will be at. And if you miss the beginning of the last meeting, you are going to be missing out because the beginning is just as important as the end in that one. It's not the same style of presentation where you can just come and go as you please. So try and come on time for the 5.30 one if you can only come, but try and come for all of them if you can because uh, this is uh, all going to be pictures the whole day, uh, PowerPoint presentations like this, and it'll be uh, uh, the one at 5.30 has never been seen by mortal eye before. Some of you have actually seen this uh, blind watchmaker presentation before because I've done it various places in this area, but the one at 5.30 is going to be completely uh, different from what has been done before anywhere in this area. So that is the most important one. If you can come to that one, come, uh, please be able to do so. So at this point, um, we will finish up, and uh, you want to go ahead and uh, have a closing prayer. Oh, also one more thing. For those who come to the last meeting, at the end of the meeting, I will be giving out a uh, special gift to all attendees who come to this meeting. So uh, that will only be for those who are here at the end of the last meeting, so just so you know.